0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. And we're going to be opening up to the book of 1 John here. Uh, We're going to be closing it out today. So not that we're closing out the book of 1 John forever, but as far as this Season that we have spent here uh, in First John, this is the final sermon. After after about four months and fifteen sermons later, today we find ourselves at the conclusion of the book of First John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love for you to have one in your hands. Just put your hand up. Ushers would love to bring you one. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that as our gift to you, so that you can hear from the living God through the pages of scripture. Well, as we uh, as we do close out the book of 1 John here this morning, this is a heartfelt letter that is was written both for authenticity and assurance. This is given by the apostle John to build up a struggling church that he loved so dearly. If we remember somewhat of the theme, we're looking at this as a mirror into our lives, a mirror to help us discern What authentic faith really looks like and given to reassure the church of the hope and life that is to be found in none other than Jesus Christ alone. John wrote this and it was given at a time when the pagan world was pressing in on all sides in the first century. Uh, this is given at a time when being a Christian truly costs you something. This is given when false teachers and counterfeit gospels threaten the health and the unity of the church from within and from without. And as we have been studying this book of 1 John so deeply over the past few months, I can't help but see the similarities uh, that, that that church was facing back then and the similarities of things that we're facing today. So the Bible, as it always is, is relevant, and the book of 1 John just seems so timelessly relevant for us as well as the church, especially as we see the world and the culture around us pressing in on all sides, Uh, as we look out into the world and we see radical ideologies and immoral conclusions abounding, and as being a Christian today is increasingly costing us more these days in the area of respect and rejection. And, as the, and even as the world is becoming even more vigilant against God and his people, and even as in Christendom itself uh, is even somewhat being shaken from within as there is much counterfeit teaching, many false theologies, and even just complacency and consumerism abounding in the church at large, Uh, So this letter that is written almost 2,000 years ago is still so relevant for our times as we as the church today still need to know what it means to be authentic because we live in a world that is so counterfeit. Friends, I don't know about you, but when I look out on this world with everything that's going on, I can sometimes become disheartened. As I look on the the things that our people are facing every day, it can be very discouraging, especially as we anticipate for our own children what they're going to face in the coming years. It can be really concerning. It can be really overwhelming and worrisome to the point that we wonder, how are we going to get through all of this? How are we going to make it through faithful? How do we persevere to the end? when we know that even by the words of God and by what we see in the world, it's going to get harder and it's going to get harder. It's going to get darker and darker. Well, as John has spent the last five chapters hitting hard on what it means to be authentic in a world that is so counterfeit, what he does in these concluding verses is to finish this letter to this church on a note of encouragement. He finishes on a tone again of reassurance that although this church in Ephesus has gone through some really hard times, and as the outlook for them may seem bleak, he reminds them of what's good and what's right and what's faithful in a world so full of death and sin and evil and idols. That it is the authentic ones, it is the authentic church who's going to persevere in hope and strength and joy because of what they have in Christ Jesus. And so John wants to leave out this letter, not in despair, but in hope. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're actually going to see in 1 John chapter 5 verses 13 to 21, we're going to see four authentic realities that will help us to persevere to the end. Four authentic realities that will persevere us to the end. So let's start by, by reading this. 1 John five, thirteen to 21. He says, I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we get to gather. We get to gather with your Spirit dwelling within us. We get to gather with Christ's righteousness covering us. That we have everything in you. That we have your word before us. We pray this morning that our hearts would be open to this word. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of Jesus Christ and how we can be transformed in beholding his glory. And so we ask you to speak as you always speak through your word. Would you move me aside and would you speak to your people and bring apart bring before us transformation, holiness, but most of all worship of who you are, that we would be in awe of who you are, that we have everything in your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we close out this letter of 1 John this morning, that you would help us again to persevere in this world of darkness, that we would know what it means to be authentic. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we just read here, friends, and as you may already have picked out in the text, this last section has much to do with knowing. As you see the phrase uh, there, that you may know, or you might see there that it says, we know, we see this this whole idea of knowing being used here seven times in these closing verses. John is reminding his church of what they need to know what they need to know to persevere until the end, and that what they need to know is what they have received in Jesus. And that's where we're going to see these four authentic realities that are going to persevere us to the end. And the first one we see starting in verse 13 is this, that in a world of death... We need to know that we have his eternal life. In a world of death, know that you have his eternal life. Look at verse 13 with me. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. As John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of, of the Son of God. He's, he's writing to the church. And what we see him doing here is really stating and emphasizing his main purpose behind writing this whole letter. That as he says, I write these things, we remember that the things that he's speaking about and that he has spoken about throughout this letter has to do with authenticity. Authenticity that he was writing a lot about, the testing of genuine faith, that in order to see who we were or who we are, we as a church need to identify who is authentic and who is not. And as we hold up that mirror, we're also looking at ourselves and we're seeing, am I authentic or am I not? It came down to, in this whole book, to three tests It came down to first that there was a doctrinal test. It's it's a test about what you truly believed about Jesus Christ, that you have to have a right Christology. And then there was also this second social test, and that was a test of your affections for Jesus and for others and how these are so connected and how they validate one another especially in the church. And then number three, there was this moral test that was running throughout this whole book, which was the test of our obedience to God about how we approach sin and how we approach temptation in light of Jesus Christ. And so there were by and large these, these main things that, that John was writing about. These things were written not to produce unbelief, Not to produce discouragement, not to produce despair, but rather things written, as he says here, that we may know what? That we may know that we have eternal life. Friends, John's purpose is not to shake your faith to the point of unbelief, but rather that you would believe all the more. Not that you would be uncertain, but that you would be certain. That's what it means by what he's saying here. That you may know. It's all about certainty. So on a quick side note, if if you've been applying this book as a hammer over your head, if you've been applying this book as condemnation, or if you've been applying this book only as pointing out all of my failures, what John would say to you is that you are missing the point. You're missing the point. That although, yes, it is good to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, the goal of this letter isn't to leave you there, despairing in uncertainty, but rather that you would ultimately arrive at delighting in your certainty. Certainty in what? Certainty in Jesus Christ. Certainty that in that as we see God at work in sinners like us, we can see Christ working out his love into us. That as we see and behold this perfect propitiation on the cross over it all, that we would be openly rejoicing all the more, rejoicing in the knowing that as we believe in him, in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that we would know with certainty that we have eternal life. That's what John wants you to know. If you truly believe in the Son of God. That's what he wants you to taste and to savor and to believe all the more right now. Notice it doesn't say that you're going to have to wait for this. No, it says you may know that you have eternal life. That means right now. That eternal life you have right now and forevermore. Friends, This is the reality that the authentic church has right now. As the church that John was writing to here was still reeling from the fallout of of false gospels amongst them, they would have been uncertain as to what to believe and what to trust. And then, in that, they would have had uncertainty in what to believe about their own faith. But as John just walked them through what authentic faith looks like through this this whole letter, what he says to them in a nutshell is that if you believe the true gospel and also live in light of that true gospel, you can know with certainty that you have eternal life right now, that it's yours, that you can own it. It means that you can live it. It means that you can love it. And you can love Christ, who is your eternal life. Friends, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life right now. I mean, this might seem a little strange, but let's just say that right now. Altogether, I have eternal life. Let's say it like we believe it. I have eternal. Eternal life. That's what the scriptures, that's what the Holy Spirit is reminding you of. We need to know that. and We need to know it all the more. This is the part of the gospel we need to be preaching to ourselves over and over again. That we have eternal life right now. That in a world that is so dead and dying all around us. And that we live amidst a world And that even though we're going to experience physical death, that we know that we don't truly die, but that we will be raised to life and we will live forever with Christ, eternal life. Yes, it's going to be so much more sweeter and so much more fully realized in our resurrection, but we have no less eternal life right now. Eternal life that is not just about living forever in heaven, but eternal life right now in the knowing of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of life that Jesus prayed for all of us to have in John John 17.3. He prayed this. He said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let me ask you, is our life to be about knowing God right now? Yes, it is. Therefore, we are to be embracing and living out that eternal life right now, and that is all about knowing Jesus. That's about knowing God. And friends, it's when we truly know this that all of our fears subside. Right? Remember, John already preached about perfect love casting out fear. It's when we truly know Jesus that we can truly discern. Light from darkness, truth from error, the authentic from the counterfeit. It's truly living in light of him, who is eternal life, that we could ever have any confidence or any assurance or any boldness, especially in these last days, right? When it's getting harder, and it's going to get even harder. Friends, it's living the eternal life right now that you and I can walk in strength, through the worst that this world can throw at us. We can walk through the brokenness of relationships. We can, we can walk with joy through some of the hardest things we could ever experience. We can walk through the destruction of cancer and disease and suffering as we live the eternal life right now. We can persevere through hard things in our families. We can persevere through infertility. We can persevere through the loss of a child, through the loss of loved ones, through the heartbreak of your own children, walking away from the faith. If we live the eternal life, we can, we can walk through abuse. We can walk through trauma. We can walk through the toughest things in this temporary world as we behold the eternal. I mean, one of the greatest examples for us is, is, is Job. In the book of Job, in the Old Testament, when you think about all that he suffered, he lost his whole family, he lost his wealth, he lost his health. And remember that, even though he did struggle through it all, what got him through was the promise of eternal life in his Redeemer. As Job himself said in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. He was hoping in the eternal life, his Messiah, who was coming back, and is going to come and take him home. Friends, this beckons both certainty and urgency in the days that we have left. As John writes, I have written these things that you may know that you have eternal life, friends. In a world of death, know that you have his eternal life. We need to let that gospel reality fuel our hearts right now. And when you have this confidence... That confidence changes everything, as John goes on to show us here in verse 14, where it says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Which leads us to our second point here this morning, which is this. In a world of sin, know that you have his willing ear. In a world of sin, we need to know that we have his willing ear. So as John closes out this letter with such hope, this this second authentic persevering reality that he circles back to here is, is how authentic faith Results in confident prayer for the days ahead, as he says. We know twice in this verse here in fifteen. This is one of those authentic realities that the church needs to know all the more right now, and to hold on to more right now, and to lean into and embrace as we press on as the authentic church. And it's and it's knowing that it's a knowing that must result in confidence and certainty. Not just in the reality of eternal life, but that is evidenced in our believing prayers. Friends, God doesn't want us to pray weak and hesitant prayers. No, he wants us to pray with absolute confidence. He doesn't want us to have a whispering, shy kind of an utterance of unbelief. No, he wants us to pray with strength and boldness Actual, real, and powerful prayers that he answers. As John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. Who's he talking about? Towards who? It's towards God. Towards the only one who has any power. Towards the only one who can actually hear. To the only one who can actually answer our prayers. Towards God. To the only one who says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. Friends, God hears your prayers if you are in Christ Jesus. We have his willing ear. His line is open at all times. You never get a busy signal with God. You never get a voicemail. You never get an unread message. No, what you get is one who answers and one who loves to answer. Whenever the prayer line rings in God's heavenly courts, you know that He's going to answer. You have that. You don't get a ringtone. What you get is as soon as you cry out to God, he picks up the phone, he picks up the prayer line immediately. He's waiting for your call. That's how it goes with God. Especially when God knows what you need before you ask. He loves to answer your calls. He doesn't look at the caller ID and say, ah, I don't want to talk to that one again. I don't want to hear from her again. He doesn't read your messages and leave you hanging. You know those little like three dots that somebody reads your message and then it just kind of disappears? That's, that's not God. No, for those who believe in God, you've got a hotline into the very courtroom of heaven and it's as if God's hand is just hovering, waiting to answer and he loves to respond to your requests. Let me ask you, do you see God like that when you take time to pray? Do you truly believe that's what he's truly like towards you? And if that's true, which it is, how should that change our own willingness and commitment in prayer? Corey Tenboom said it like this. She said, is your prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Like, do you just take it out when you really need it? When things are really going bad? No, friends, prayer is a muscle that requires the highest priority because God makes it such a high priority with himself. As much as God is willing to hear us, how much more should we be willing then to respond to him in prayer? As John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Take special note, it says, if we ask anything. Anything as in anything. Anything meaning that the sky is the limit. Because why? Because he's God. God can do anything. Friends, don't think your prayers are too small or too big for God, because God has the power to do anything. Just think about God in in, in our study through Genesis. Hovering over the waters at the very beginning. Speaking the whole universe into existence. He can do anything. He also upholds the very universe by the word of his power. God has no limit to what he can do. But with that said... If there was any kind of a limit that God would put on prayer, it comes down to this. Notice how John qualifies it here. He says anything, but this is also extremely important. He says it's anything that is according to his will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's according to his will. And so it seems here that although God's ability is unlimited, He Himself puts some guardrails in prayer in, in place for the asking. He gives us a spiritual seatbelt to fasten for the kinds of prayers that He answers. So, again, that doesn't mean that there's any kind of a limit to His ability, but yet He confines His hearing to our asking according to His will. So, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that God only operates within his own will. Therefore, he only answers prayers according to his own will. And friends, this is important. Because prayer is not about changing God's mind. Prayer is not about conforming God's ways to our ways. Prayer is not about convincing him about anything. No, prayer is more about us conforming to his will and his way. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is all about conforming to the image of Christ. And in that, conforming to the will of Christ. That as we lean into the work of knowing God by his word, by his spirit, we're having our minds transformed. We're having our thoughts captivated. We're having our wills surrendered to all that is his and all that he commands. That's what Paul meant in Romans 12, 2, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, friends, the more that you give yourself to God's word, the more you begin to think like him. And then as you begin to think more like God, you begin to to discern what the will of God is, what is good, how God defines it, what is acceptable as God defines it, and what is perfect as God defines it. Friends, that's the process. The more that you are transformed... The more that you begin to know his will as you look at the very word of God. Therefore, that changes how you pray. And it changes how you also begin to pray the very will of God. It's the same as David said in Psalm 37.4 when he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't just say God's gonna give you the desires of your heart. It begins with delighting yourself in the Lord. When you delight yourself in the Lord, you're gonna ultimately delight in the things of the Lord and the things that he desires. And when your desires line up with God's desires, that's when he gives you the desires of your heart because your desires have been transformed. Just as Jesus said about, or said about this as well in John 15, 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You know, some people really just try to park on those last words. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But they forget the first qualifying part of that. If you abide in me. And my words, the Bible, abide in you. Right As you see that transformation and all the change coming from the Lord, ask whatever you wish because what you wish is now what God's will is. And it will be done for you. So friends, this removes that idea that God is just some kind of a cosmic vending machine in the sky, that he's some kind of a genie or a Santa Claus that you just wish whatever you want and he grants it. No, the governing factor he places on truly hearing and answering prayer comes down to whether or not your prayers are, in, are asked in accordance with his will. I mean, this is how Jesus taught us how to pray. In Matthew 6, 21. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even as he was sweating Drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane as God the Father is already pouring out the bowl of wrath upon him. He ends up saying, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Friends, these are the kinds of prayers that God answers. And then as John goes on to say here in verse 15, it says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So friends, the most confident and bold prayers are those that know God's will. And they know that God will answer. So yes, we are to pray big things because God does big things. But as much as you are able, pray the things of God. Remember that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, His ways are higher than our ways. That doesn't mean that we're gonna know His will perfectly at all times. If you wanna know God's will, go to the Word of God. That's where you find His will. Even as Philippians would instruct us in Philippians 4 6. It, it teaches us to, not, to do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Friends, we are to pray about everything. But what John is getting at here is that the prayers that line up with God's will are the prayers he hears and answers. And then therefore, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. One, one commentator says it this way. He says, prayer rightly considered is not a device for employing the resources of omnipotence to fulfill our own desires, but a means by which our desires may be redirected according to the mind of God and made into channels for the forces of his will. And so with this right understanding of prayer, John John gives also a very pertinent example of this kind of praying. He says in verse 16, which is a much debated section of Scripture, he says in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. What is asking? Praying, right? And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. He then says, there is a sin that leads to death. Or sorry, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What is he talking about? Although this kind of seems out of sync with John's argument about prayer, what he's doing here is showing the church the difference between prayers that line up with God's will and prayers that don't. As we remember the context about these false teachers and the Antichrist that John and the church had to put out from the church, he's defining the difference of how you would pray for a true brother in light of all of those who are not true brothers. As verse 16 mentions, praying for a brother about a sin that does not lead to death, he's talking about how we should pray for a brother. Key word, brother. It's a true believer. But it's a brother who is in a season of sin. Yet he is no less a true brother. A brother, as John says. A brother who is not given to a continual, habitual life of sin. He's not of the devil, as chapter 3 talks about, who makes a practice of sinning. But rather, he's talking here about a true brother who has momentarily fallen into sin. And so what John says here about our bold praying is that we can boldly and confidently ask in prayer for that kind of a brother. We ask for life for that brother in his sin that does not lead to death. If you're praying that, your prayer for that brother is aligning with whose will. I mean, God's will is that that brother would be further sanctified, that brother or sister. And we should confidently pray for that. In our life and in our church, we want more of the life of Christ. But as for those who are living a life of continual rejection of Christ, that's what he's defining here with sin that leads to death. John says, I do not say that one should pray for that. That, it, that it's not a command to pray for them. And so think about these false teachers and these antichrists that were amongst them. There was false teachers, antichrists, against Christ. Remember, that's against Christ. What John is saying here is there is a time to stop praying for them. You know, it's like that idea in Scripture teaching us about, you know, we can be casting our pearls before swine. That there's instruction here. To stop pursuing those who outright reject Jesus. That there is a time after all of your prayers, and especially in light of those who are against Christ, who continually reject the gospel, that they, there may be a time to stop praying for them. That ultimately, your prayers may be actually against the will of God for them. It's like a time when God actually instructed the prophet Jeremiah to stop praying for the people of Judah. The people of Judah at that time were continually rejecting God. They were worshiping the idols of the world. And God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah eleven fourteen, 14, he said, therefore do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble." So as God has had, he had enough of their rejection. And it was really them moving into a cycle of judgment. That was God's will for them. Their sin was leading them to death. And so to pray against that was to pray against God's will. It's like Jesus' instruction to his disciples in Matthew ten fourteen to 15. As he was sending them out into the world... He said, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so as John says here that there is sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. He says all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Death. He's really defining the difference between praying God's will for a true brother and the futility of praying for those who evidently reject God to their death, the Antichrist, the false teachers. That kind of goes against what we might think. As we pray for the unbelieving world around us. It seems that John is really categorizing and he's really targeting the context of what's going on here. About these false teachers, these these antichrists that that disrupted the church. Almost blew up the church and they've been since put out of the church. Devoted to destruction. That was God's will for them. And so he's commanding that they should not pray for that. Now, without getting too sidetracked about that point, the main thing that John is getting across here is that in a world of sin, as all wrongdoing is sin here, is that we have God's willing ear, that we have access, and we have such bold access to the throne room of grace, and that God answers our prayers as we give give ourselves to his will and to his way. Again, verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him. And friends, this should just produce so much more boldness and so much more confidence in prayer for the days ahead that our God is for us, that we have his willing ear. And this is the kind of confidence That should fill your life with prayer. It's the kind of confidence that reminds you that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. And so it drives you to your knees. It starts your day off in the right posture before God. It saturates your day. It fills the prayer meeting. And it points to the fervency and dependency and expectancy that we should have in prayer. Because in a world of sin, we need to remind ourselves. We need to know that we have God's ear. Well, we have a third persevering reality here as well. And that is this, that in a world of evil, we need to know that we have his divine protection. Again, look at what John wants us to know here. He says in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So friends, as we've already studied what Paul means by saying that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that what he's talking about is that true Christians no longer make it their life's practice and devotion to sin. Right? That as we are born again and as we are growing in Christ we now despise our sin. And our life is a life of continual turning from our sin, that we're no longer slaves of sin, but we're now slaves of righteousness. And so as we've already studied this thoroughly in the past chapters, what we want to see here with what Paul's really emphasizing and what he really wants the church to know is that in light of this world, a light full of evil and sin and Satan. What he wants us to remember and to know is the powerful protection of God in Christ. That as John says, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. He's speaking about the firstborn son of God, Jesus Christ. And how he lives to protect his people. We see this all over John's gospel. We see it all over the scriptures. Especially in John chapter 17 in his gospel. Where we see Jesus praying for his disciples and praying for us. We see in John 17:12, He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Which you have given me. I have guarded them. And that as he was about to ascend back to heaven, he asked the Father to keep us and protect us. John 17, 15. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so the Christian life is is about living in this world for the time that we have. But we are protected from the evil one. Again, we have nothing to fear. When we are kept and we are guarded by God, as John says here, he says the evil one does not touch him, right? Satan could not take Jesus down. And when we are found in Jesus Christ, we have the absolute, infinite, all-powerful protection from the evil one himself, as John already taught us in this letter, the greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Friends, there is no power of hell. There is no scheme of man that could ever pluck us from his hand. We love to sing that. And as we live in this world, a world that is lying in the power of the evil one, we know that, that the world around us is dark. Just turn on the news or don't turn on the news. You know, Ephesians two two says about the world that they are following the course of this world. They're following the prince of the power of the air. Let us not forget that that was us. That was us as well. And if you don't know Christ, that is you. We though are those who have been freed from the domain of darkness. We live as aliens in this world. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are those who are in the world but not of the world because we serve the risen king, not the prince of darkness. We have God's very protecting spirit within us and we are protected from the spirits of this world. We need to know this. We need to remind ourselves of this over and over again that Satan has no power over God's people. As the Bible says, he cannot even touch Christ. Satan cannot even touch us when we are in Christ. So don't give him any more credit than he deserves. Don't elevate him to a power that he he doesn't actually have over you. Yes, Satan is powerful. He's powerful over the world. But he is no longer powerful over us. Yes, he is prowling around seeking someone to devour, but he cannot devour you if you are in Jesus Christ. No, friends, we are guarded, we are kept in perfect safety forever. That doesn't mean that we won't experience the effects of the fall here. That doesn't mean that we won't be tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to, and we will we will experience that. It also doesn't mean that Satan's not going to throw everything he can at the church to try to tear her down and to stain the name of Christ in this world. But what it does mean is that although we can still experience the effects of the fall and persecution and trials, our spiritual state and our eternal state are more secure than anything could ever be because we are guarded by the most infinitely powerful person in the cosmos. And he is guarding our very souls forever and ever. And friends, as John says, we know that we are from God. God is not letting go of us. God will never leave us, he said. He will never forsake us. No, he is our strong tower. He is our mighty fortress, as the psalmist writes. He is our rock. He is our deliverer. If God ever saved you, you are forever secure. As Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, his his words are just so encouraging we sing a bulwark never failing. In the third stanza of this hymn, we sing, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Friends, as Christ so powerfully defeated Satan on the cross, Satan's days are numbered. As John is also going to write later in Revelation 20, verse 7 to 10, he says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But listen to what happens next. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, as powerful and as numerous as all evil and Satan are, one little word shall fell him. There's no struggle in this battle. No, just fire from heaven and fire forever. It's done. That's the all-powerful God who protects us. Friends, we need to know this divine protection at all times and all the more. As John's church would have been quite timid coming out of a season of corruption within their ranks, they needed to stand strong. Friends, we need to stand strong. We need to stand strong in God's divine protection as we face the world in the coming years. Know that you have his divine protection. And so as John closes out this letter reminding the church about their eternal life and having God's willing ear and having His divine protection, the final persevering reality He reminds them of is that in a world of idols, know that you have His true Son. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Friends, as we've been looking at this book, with the theme of authentic, with that tagline, that you may know. It all comes down to knowing the true and only authentic one himself, Jesus Christ. And we see this again here in verse 20, the phrase, and we know. And then we see again, that we may know. To know Jesus is to know him in.